On one side, we have a mountain of suffering. And whenever the government gives us a grain of sand of support, they seem to think the trauma from our past has been rectified, that somehow they deserve a pat on the back. Count of three. One, two. Hi, I'm Ramnik Johal. And I'm Carol Eugene Park. This is Decomplicated. Hey, Ramnique, how you doing? I am doing swell, Carol. How are you? I'm good. I hear that you had a very interesting conversation with a very cool person. Uh, Want to give me a little spiel on that? Yeah, so I got the opportunity to interview NDP MP for Nunavut, Mumila Kakak. And we spoke about how... Well, we spoke about a lot of things, and uh, for the most part, the undercurrent of that conversation was the fact that in this country, colonization is not over. And for some of you who may have seen, uh, Mumilak gave her farewell speech in the House of Commons on Tuesday, and that has kind of been circulating and kind of reverberating through the country. Um, but that discussion really laid out so many of the different ways that Inuit and Indigenous people in this country face racism and discrimination and oppression through a multitude of levels, from childhood all the way up into the chambers of the House of Commons. And I think that's why that conversation was so powerful um, and why her, her story and that her voice in this conversation was so powerful, because it illustrates that you can be an MP and you can still face a lot of the same things that um, Indigenous and Inuit people in this country face every day. Well, I, I for one, am very excited to listen to this interview because I'm sure, I'm sure it's, it's, it's one that I wish I had not missed, but I had missed. Before we play that clip, uh, we will say there will be no what with the forks uh, today because we just want to highlight this conversation, kind of give it the, its own space and let it be. So without further ado, roll the clip. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, today we are joined by Mumila Kakak, Nunavut MP. Um, and we're going to be talking a bit about a speech that you did a couple of weeks ago, but also touching on your farewell speech in the House of Commons, which touch on this, a similar theme, the fact that colonization in Canada is not over. Uh, so first and foremost, thank you so, so much for, for joining me today. Uh, so firstly, I would love to just commend you for and thank you for your words yesterday in your farewell speech. I think the impacts of that are still reverberating across the country today as they should. Um, and I wanted to start there because I think that something you said in that speech was so powerful that your life in Canada and your experience in the House of Commons taught you how to be in survival mode. And that's not an isolated experience. So can you talk a bit about that and elaborate on what you meant by that and your choice to to leave parliament. I know I do a good job at being a member of parliament. I know I have and continue to use this phenomenal opportunity to the best of my ability. And I can do that and not be completely happy. And that's fine as long as, and that's why I'm not seeking re-election. That's, I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilling what I personally feel I need to. And, and that's okay. I didn't even want to come into this kind of realm. It was the best opportunity at the time. So, and, and that was the thing. It was, 
it's the most selfish decision I've probably ever made in my life. Like everything I do is so selfless. I'm so giving and so careless of my own uh, needs up until recently where I really had to look around and say, yeah, I'm good at this. Yeah, I can do it. But let me, I, I have shown people that they can do it too. And, and that was the goal. And if I've done that, then those people that really want to be a politician really want to enter this world and know what they're walking into. Um, maybe I've given a little bit of hope there because I'm point blank saying I, I didn't want something or wasn't out seeking something like this, I should say, and saw the opportunity to help. And I've done a really good job trying to, to use it to amplify voices of those that are left out all too often. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I think that's that's a huge part of, of this conversation is, is giving young people the chance to see people like them doing this. Um, and like you said, you're, the work is not done and, and you have been uh, very vocal, especially in recent months. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, motion from the NDPs that passed in the House last week that we were waiting uh, for the feds to respond to? So the NDP motion for truth and reconciliation. We'd like to think of Canada as a diverse and inclusive country. It is diverse. I wouldn't call it inclusive because it doesn't, the systems... And and this is the thing that I think a lot of people get really upset about and I think needs to be a part of what we talk a lot about too. What we are trying to communicate is these systems don't work for us as minorities, as Indigenous people, as racialized individuals. And, and you can come from a lot of different backgrounds and face a lot of the similarities. And I've been thinking a lot about how, how, how do you explain racism? How do you explain inequality? How do you explain these kinds of things to people that can't see that because the system works for them? And there's always a huge conversation around, you know, I've been thinking a lot about can white people experience racism. And I don't think white people can experience racism because they hold the power. Power imbalance leads to these kinds of things. So if the system is made for you, if the system holds power for you, you can face discrimination maybe, but you will never face racism because the system is built for you. The system isn't made to be racist towards you. Now, quite frankly, the systems are racist towards uh, racialized individuals, minority, or those from minority groups. And so how do you explain it's a power imbalance? There were 215 children found there have been more. The numbers have been coming up. It's it's being confirmed. It's not being discovered. It's this. It's being confirmed. We're finally getting answers, but it's already like completely fallen off the media. It was like a two three day thing, and then like they're refusing to call it a mass grave. They were like just all of this. Um, I, I don't even know uh, really what to call it and. I, I can't help but think of the Broncos. I can't help but think of the the hockey team and the horrible bus crash. The country stood still and held its breath for a long time. It came together in ways that we knew it would because this is something that is so terrible that um, through you know a sport that can be so uniting and, and brings us all together, 
But why didn't we see that same standstill or that same hurt when 215 children were uncovered? Why didn't we see that same kind of hurt that, oh, this is happening in our country to us? And those conversations may have started for a day or two, but right away the media forgot about it right away. Like we saw flags go back up like we saw. And it was a hot story of the week. And there are still being children found. There are still being all of these horrible court cases happening. There are still all of these horrific things happening. And let's keep in mind who funds a lot of the media is the federal government. Um, I'm always on the media's case for how they present their stories, like how they are presenting mine and putting me next to the block. Do not, do not relate or equivalent my experience to that man. Stop putting me in with the same stories. The media has such immense amount of power in how they can influence people to see things. So that's something that's always I'm always on um, on about to and calling the media out for. Um, but uh, yeah, to keep to keep pressure, to keep conversation. And that just seems like it seems so weird to say like we need to keep talking about it like like we have to force this liberal government to keep making sure they're being held to account and being transparent and being honest and being and doing the right thing like we have to keep pushing to dig children up from the ground and to make it important and to make that injustice fulfilled like it's so swept under the rug all the time. And it's like, do not care about Indigenous lives or babies because those could have been parents and grandparents. And you took that, the federal institution, they took that right from us. And they continue to without any sense of uh, obligation or responsibility. In fact, they love to pat themselves on the back for things that are point bluntly shameful for things that are um, bluntly disgusting to say oh look at me yay I did this no absolutely not people think it's you know in the past but you're still alive and you still have a grandmother you still have a parent and you are still here and it doesn't mean that history doesn't affect you and can't trickle down it's really hard to break cycles as much as we want to think we're not going to be like our parents man like as soon as I hit whatever stop being such a stubborn teenager all the time I could just hear my mom come out of my mouth because that's what we're raised with and we think I'm not going to be like my mom or dad and sooner or later we find ourselves because that's how we're taught we learn that's how life works. So it's it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to break these cycles. It's in, it's not a thing of the past because it's still living today. It's it hasn't been healed from um and and people need to realize that we can't even talk about healing until we talk about equity, until we talk about basic human rights. We can't expect people to heal from trauma if they're struggling to feed themselves, to sleep in a safe space, and to keep themselves clean and hydrated. You can't expect someone to heal from the immense amount of crazy history the federal government has put on and fueled and built um, onto Indigenous people. You can't 
expect somebody without the quality of life and well-being to be able to process things effectively, to come to great solutions uh, clearly, uh, to be able to learn. How, how does a child absorb information if they are hungry and not bathed and weren't able maybe to sleep much the night before in an overcrowded place? How do you expect a five-year-old to be able to learn their ABCs, one, two, three, EPTKs, and be able to, to do that? It's we, we can't talk about healing until we talk about Equity. I think more Canadians are coming to more awareness because I'm. I just mean making sure people are okay. People um, can survive day to day, and they're not. They can think about what they want to do with their life, not how am I going to be safe tonight, or how am I going to eat next week, or where am I going to bathe next month. Like people are worried about surviving. We can't expect them to. Uh, you know, think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can't move up and work towards self-determination, work towards those kinds of things if you don't even have the basics. We need to have the basics first, at least, um, at minimum. And we're not even talking about like, we're not talking about give us a free ride. We're talking about you, the federal institution, the RCMP institution, churches, residential schools, put us here put us in these horrific circumstances. Now we just want out. We just want the means to be able to survive. I, I'm just shown through myself all the time that, that Inuit are just so full, full of resilience. Um, but that we need allies. We need people external with more connections, with bigger voices, with more positions of power, especially. Uh, we need our allies that'll help amplify these calls to action because we can sit here and live this life and live this every day and know this experience, know this history. And we have been, we have been for decades. And what has changed? What has gotten better overall, truly for Inuit since I've been born and I don't see much. I've gone, grown up and have known nothing but turmoil and violence and poverty and anger and stress and anxiety and suicide and death and violence. That's my norm. It's not normal. And it's hard and, and extremely difficult to even break from that cycle and why should we have to struggle so much break out of the cycle and then struggle more to help more people try and break out of the cycle that we already know is so hard to we know exactly uh, what needs to be done and, and overcome to get out of these things but why are we now the ones fighting for ourselves uh, in these very oppressed systems um, it's like I don't know. It's kind of like go protest for food and you haven't eaten in a week. It doesn't really it, it doesn't really make sense. We need other people that have eaten in the last week to protest for us. So definitely keeping up the pressure uh, in terms of the calls to action for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is it needs it should be a priority. And if this government says reconciliation is a priority, they would already be fulfilling these but they're not. And we need to keep up the, the pressure to make sure that they do. And so you talked about how colonization is not over in this country. And this is seen, like you just said, in large and, and small ways at every level. Um, can you elaborate 
on, you know, you talked about the specifically in relation to the foster care system and, and you mentioned, you know, how it's an extension of what, what's been happening for decades. Can you elaborate um, a little bit more on that? Because you also said we wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for the official confirmation um, in, in Kamloops. Um, so can you elaborate on how um, those two things are inextricably linked? Thinking about cycles and being raised and copying our parents. Well, who's had a prime minister father? Who's the prime minister now? And meanwhile, we're not supposed to talk about family, but then history is so important. But then, and I'm like, well, Pierre Trudeau was writing the white paper. Our current prime minister was raised in this ideology. Don't tell me there's no trickle effects happening. The Canadian prime minister is a feminist reconciliation wanting individual. He's clearly not. And he's clearly been able to provide those 10, 15 second sound bites to be able to live and breathe like a politician and like a, like a politician and see that's my, my whole thing. Politics can look, feel and be different. And I think people are starting to realize that more. I want to take every opportunity I can to do the best I can for Nunavut and I've also decided it's it's time to do things for myself as well. But until that time comes, I'm still here as a member. I'm still here to do the best I can. I'm still here to advocate for Nunavut and Inuit. And that's exactly what I plan on doing. Thank you for that. And and so you said you called it a colonial house on fire. And I think, and, and like, again, like you said uh, a few weeks ago, these impacts are being seen in different ways. And even in your speech yesterday, you talked about how you joined this institution, uh, which has been built on the backs, trauma and displacement of Indigenous people. And I think for, for most people, even for people like myself, we would think in an ideal world, people who are MPs, people who are politicians are able to to kind of be above that kind of racism that is present in everyday Canadian society. But but like you pointed out, it's founded on that type of racism. Can you talk about that experience, how for yourself as an MP, but just even for for this country, which was founded on the genocide of, of Indigenous people, it, it runs so deep? Definitely. And, and for clarity as well, when we're talking about off when I'm talking about off the backs of Indigenous people uh, and displacement, what I mean is forcibly being relocated. What I mean is when there were periods of time where the federal institution, RCMP institution, moved in uh, First Nations uh, groups. Uh, I'm not going to dive too much into that history because I know it's like there. And, and and this is the thing too. There are so many histories. There are so many wide ranging, if you will, the way that I view a lot of it is uh, in Southern Canada. This has been a lot more present in the last hundred, 150 years in the North. It's been closer to 60 or 70 years. Uh, although facing a lot of commonalities, I would say the Canadian government learned a lot from dealing with first dealing with the Indian problem, dealing with First Nations, and used much more pack a punched intense things for the North because they learned how to segregate, how to isolate, and how to uh, just use a group of people as a basically like a stake in a pot of land. 
And so down south, where we saw forcibly uh, First Nations being forcibly relocated, what we saw was First Nations handling and having these immense amounts of complex living systems from justice, from farming, from all of these, all of these things we see in society today to being put in a position where we saw a major, we saw the power imbalance happen. But when I'm talking about displacement, the federal institution, that Nunavut is the the communities, uh, not the territory itself, but the communities, the majority of those settlements are human flagpoles. They're, they're just to be able to say this is Canadian land. They don't, they never cared about the people there. So when I would say displacement, they took Inuit from Nunavik, from Northern Labrador, and they put them up uh, where Greece Fjord is now. But they started by putting them on the other side of the island, and they left a bunch of people there for the winter, basically, to see if they could survive, because they want to be able to say, there are people here. We do own this land. This is our land. But the displacement of Nunavik Inuit to where near Greasefjord is, and they moved them from one side of the island to the other because most men died, because women and children were dying, because there was no food, and but they needed that piece of land. So they just moved them onto the other side of the island and said, let's see if they can survive here. Uh, Resolute Bay, uh, those two communities are basically from from Nunavik, and they promise those Inuit, we'll move you, we'll house you, we'll clothe you, we'll feed you, you will get to stay with your family. And all of these promises were made. They got there. People were split in half between Resolute Bay and Greece Fjord. They weren't given the option of if they went with their family or not. They were just split. They were not given food or shelter or clothing, at least not adequate. And that's what I mean when I say the displacement, Canada is legit, like that's how they built it. That's how they claimed what the lands of Canada is. Indigenous peoples had responsibility. I can't even say ownership because that's not how Indigenous people viewed. uh, It's not a sense of ownership. It's a sense of responsibility to uh, uh, your land to how that feeds you, how that. So all of these systems and things were being able to be broken down by the federal institution through laws and policies. And those still play out today. The Indian Act is still alive. So one of the tools that they used to be able to keep uh, First Nations communities in their now uh, the soil typically wasn't great. It wasn't good for farming. It wasn't good for any production. It wasn't good for any any kind of lifestyle that First Nations groups often needed or were used to. And you went from hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of responsibility of land to now these little reserves that the Canadian government forced you onto. One of the tools that they they used was called an Indian agent and you needed permission from the Indian agent to leave the reserve you needed like to fill out how long you were going for what you were going for you needed to be back by certain like all this kind of stuff well I think of status cards in order to access programs and services why do you need this government permission now to have access to what is rightfully yours like you should be able to come and go as you please from where you live. Uh, 
and now you you couldn't at the time now you have the status card and want to access certain services and programs you are entitled to as an indigenous person but the government yet again is here signing this card and giving you this piece of paper to say that to me that that's not much different uh, take another example of when we think of things like the 60s scoop when we think of um, immense amount of children being taken away we see that so much in the north it's it's scary and i've had um i've started conversations with uh nikki who's uh, very open and public about her experience as a foster child and growing up and now she works with the manitoba inuit association but i asked her i've been trying to adopt a dog for the last eight months or so it's so so difficult and i'm such a giving, loving person. I can provide a safe home. I can provide references. Da, 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 da. There's nothing for me not to be able to get a dog, but I can't. It's been so hard. And the more I thought about it, and the more I've been looking and and researching, why do dogs get assessed and then have their needs met more than children? So I messaged her and I said, can you tell me if I'm like way out of line? Can you tell me if I'm completely wrong? And please like be so blunt and honest with me. But I think dogs are being treated better in Canada than children in the foster care system are. And I made that comparison of a dog has trauma or is traumatized. They come to an organization or facility and get assessed. These are their needs. And then they don't basically rest until they find a home where they know an owner is going to be like that. They check in. They do background checks. Meanwhile, there are so many Inuit and Indigenous children getting plucked from their home, plucked into, plunkered, plunk, plucked from their home and put into other spaces that don't fit their needs, don't work for them. It feels really wrong to compare this, but I think dogs are being treated way better than children, Indigenous children are in the foster care system. And to me, that's that's no different than what we saw 50, 100 years ago when the federal government was telling parents, the way of your life and the way you're doing things, it's not right. The way we do things, it's that's how it's supposed to be. And complete disregard for the child's needs, the child's wants, the child's well-being, complete disregard for it. And having conversations with somebody else who's actually been, who's, you know, been through the foster care system, has foster children uh, since. She knows what it's like. She knows how messed up it can be. She knows the ring around the rosy you're constantly going to get. She knows when, you know. Kids fall through the cracks all the time, don't have paperwork filled, don't have what these are kids, human beings. How is it different from not caring about the 215 children that have been just found? I think um, it's people are starting to see more the trickle effect, more the cycle, more that they can be a part of the solution. I, I think it's a huge one and more of an understanding of. Why aren't we in a Canada where you know absolutely everything, and that's a big stretch, but it shouldn't know everything about Inuit, about First Nations, about Métis. We are the first people of this country. We should be most proud of us. We should be uplifting us, and Canadians should know about us. 
And yet we're the ones often struggling the most. We're the ones with the highest rates of all these horrific numbers that can ring off all the time. Why don't we walk down Pearson Airport and see nothing but indigeneity everywhere? Why don't we go to universities and know what lands they're on? Like, why why aren't we in a Canada where the first people here are the true pride and the true, true North? We are true North. We are the first people here where... We would be proud Canadians if we just got a shot at equality and we're, we're, and that's the heartbreaking part. And going back to the power imbalance, we just want that to be restored because we want to help everyone. When Indigenous people are yelling and arguing about climate and clean water, it's not just for us. We all got to drink water and breathe air. We're all trying to help everyone here. This is not just benefit, and that's maybe that's why Indigenous people struggle so much. We're not a power ideation. It's not about power. It's not about. It's about making sure people are good. It's a holistic view of the environment, our family, our community, but the animals, the water, the land, everything is in harmony. Everything has a cycle. So you obviously laid out so many things that, you know, there's so much more work to be done and and you've made that very clear. Um, For you, where does this work start? Where can we, or where does this work continue? And what are where can as Canadians as a country where can we start to me it's we need to just see basic human rights and that's how why this history is so important and off of what I mean when I say off the displacement of indigenous peoples because what that has evolved to is really intense cycles that are hard to break from really intense things that are hard to um to to see and understand. And in myself, in the last few months, have realized that I've never truly had the right to self-determination. I never change myself or my life or experiences, but damn, I never had the choice in what I was going to do or be because all I saw was violence and turmoil. And all that was pushed on me was you have to do your best to your ability to help um and and that's you know inuit are a very united um community family oriented kind of people and we're always raised with the ideation that you need to do the best to your ability to help other inuit because so many other inuit need help and you're not struggling so help other inuit that aren't struggling and through colonization through being having those rights and those opportunities being taken away from Inuit even though I personally had them I really didn't in a lot of ways I by the time I was in grade 9 and 10 really understood and knew how to talk someone down from suicidal ideation knew how to uh, deal with uh, trauma Uh, by the time I was you know graduated there were uh, a lot of friends and family who had been through really intense things that have been involved, uh, you know, involve RCMP, involve very traumatizing incidences. And by the time I'm, I'm 25, there I was working in the quality of life secretariat, 
fully understanding, knowing how to talk about uh, suicidal ideation, the difference between that and um, actually having like a plan to carry out and all these different kinds of things and how cycles inform that, how history informs that, how people can come to that um, and what exactly it means in different stages and and not means, but could mean um, and in an in a northern context. So I have always been uh, working on how, what's the best way to communicate? What's the best way to come through? What's the best way to have the other side see this? There's reason for this. There's um, we don't say it just to say it, and we don't. No one chooses this history or past, but it is what it is. Um, but in that. And last week and the week before, I totally would have like cried like a little baby about this. But it and because it's been so hard to truly realize that I've never had the right to self-determination. And the only reason I'm here is because of the experiences in my life. As much as I wouldn't change them, I wish Inuit were in a position to have the right to self-determination because I would be a fashion designer or a zoologist or one of those like to me crazy now passions that I had when I was younger but I totally would have fulfilled like my mom gave me sketches a few weeks ago of the dresses and shirts I used to draw when I was like 15 and that's for sure what I probably would have continued to do what I'm finding my passion in again but because of all the turmoil and violence going on around all the time it was always what's my best way to help Uh, it's been really hard but it's also helpful because I'm so open and transparent, everybody can come with me along the way to be able to see uh, politi- politicians, if you're electing the right ones, can act human too, can uh, have an understanding too. So I, I think in a lot of ways, I at least uh, really rock the boat. Um, maybe not in ways that I, and I have such high expectations. I'm one of those like, bite off more than you can chew Uh uh-uh the animal is still alive and running and I am flipping chasing it and I'm gonna try my darnness to get a bite out of that thing and like that's just the kind of person I've I've always been and again being able to really reflect and and understand that and understand that um, there's a lot of amazing things that I can do and the intention of my life I truly believe is to start a revolution to start a difference to start a, a shift and to at least be able to say hmm, it was around this time that we really saw Canada start to wake up federal government does not do anything without immense amount of pressure so we need those allies we need we need people like me but understand people like me are also often don't want to be in this position we don't want to have to work this hard and be this resilient and struggle this much to have Inuit voices heard, have Northern voices heard. And our allies can help alleviate so much of that extra speaking, extra uh, storytelling. It's so exhausting all day long to say oh well this is the struggles this is like it's all out there it's all available for people and um 
yeah, so I would just, I'd challenge people to start with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. Thank you so much for, for your time today, for sharing all of that. And I think this is such an important conversation that I hope, like you said, continues to happen and not just a one-off, not just one news cycle. It's a continued conversation. So thank you for always being willing to add your voice to, to this conversation. I, I'm really grateful. No, thank you for having me in this space. I appreciate it. This episode was produced by Romnique Johal, Carol Eugene Park, that's me, and Bray Kwan. Decomplicated is a product of Overstory Media Group. See you tomorrow.